Greetings, Grid Connections listeners. Today, I'm excited to share with you this episode with Tom Malagny of the State of Charge podcast, the co-host of Batteries Included podcast, and now the founder of evchargingstations.com. Tom and I had a great conversation about what got him into EVs along with some of the different experiences that he's had and he wants to share with soon-to-be EV owners as well. Hey, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Tom, I, I have a really good feeling that the likelihood that people who watch and listen to our podcast have probably already uh, come across your channel and know what you do. But uh, real quickly, can you just give an overview about um, how you got into actually just into EVs and then uh, how that led to the formation of State of Charge? Sure. So, you know, the, my my uh, entry into this EV space is an interesting one. I owned a restaurant in Montclair, New Jersey for almost 30 years. And uh, I was always interested in alternative fuel vehicles. I always figured at some point we're going to be transitioning off gas. What would we be using? Uh, you know, for a while, I thought it would be hydrogen. Um but I was always interested in electric vehicles because I know people that made had made home-built cars, and I know they worked. It was just a matter of, well, how far would they go and uh, how quick can you recharge them? So back in 2008, I found this online application. It said, do you want to drive an electric car? And I said, hmm, that sounds interesting. So I filled it out. It was BMW had this pilot program. Uh, where they were going to be making about 500 electric cars. They, they used a Mini Cooper as the base. They called it the Mini E. And they were looking for people to lease these for a year and drive it and kind of report back to them on what they liked, what they didn't like. It was a, a pilot. It was a learning experience for BMW. So I thought it'd be a cool idea. And I lived in one of the few areas that they offered this in the country. It was only available in a small New York, New Jersey region, and also in a certain area of California. And I lived, I live in New Jersey, so I was in that area. Filled it out, and I forgot about it. And then about a year later, I got an email from BMW saying, hey, you've been accepted. Do you want to be in this program? Then I had to think about it. I say, oh, wow, do I really want to do this? Because, yeah, I didn't know, were they, was the EV even, was it even going to be able to go up a hill? You know, like, was it going to be this weak thing with like 50 horsepower that like, you know, puttered when you stepped on the accelerator. But I said, yeah, I think I like to do this. This should be fun. So I, I entered the program and immediately when I got it, I was like, this is freaking amazing. Like this thing is so much fun to drive. It's deadly silent. It's got instant torque. It's, it's unlike anything I've driven before. It's a mini Cooper. So it handles really well. It's like this little rocket, you know, on wheels. And, uh, I was kind of blown away and I'm like, holy crap, like, this is what I want to drive. Like I want to drive electric vehicles. And at the time I wasn't doing anything in the space as far as like reporting or writing or blogging, nothing like that. So then um, about four months after I got the car, I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to drive electric cars, whether I have to make my own, but this is so cool. Never going to gas stations. So I put a solar array on my roof uh, and uh, a nine kilowatt solar array. So I said, I'm going to make my own fuel. This is what I'm going to do. So then uh, a month or two after I found Facebook group that was only for the, the people in this mini e group. So I joined the Facebook group and it was a great resource to share information. Like some of the online forums still are for electric vehicle owners. It's a learning experience. Most people, it's their first EV. So sure. these groups are very helpful. I'm sure you've learned stuff online and groups and so forth. So I learned that some of the people in this mini e group started blogs and they're like, I'm, I'm blogging about life with an electric car. And I said, that's kind of a cool idea. Like maybe people are interested in this. So I started a blog and I started writing about my experience living with an electric car. Now, don't forget, this is 2009, early 2009. There were no electric cars out there yet. The Leaf hadn't come yet. The Volt hadn't come yet. The Tesla Roadster was just starting to be delivered, but yeah. it was $110,000. Know, it was, it was a unicorn people... at that point. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, and at the time, nobody even gave Tesla, you know, a, a, a chance in hell of ever making it, you know, but right. anyway, even Elon didn't think at that time it was going to make it, <laughs> which he said in many interviews, like, yeah, I thought for sure in 2009, like we, this was, we were going belly up. So any event, I started blogging. My blogs got really popular. A lot of people started reading from around the world. 
I started getting noticed by some of the news media. They started to ask me to do interviews. I was in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, a whole bunch of national magazines and articles. So then I started getting asked to write for like some websites. Hey, would you like to write a guest article about what it's like to live with an electric car? Because we don't know anybody that has an electric car. So I started writing and my articles seemed to do well. And I started getting more and more um, invitations. So then I started writing regularly for a few sites. And um, all the while, I was still in my restaurant. But then I started getting asked by automakers if I would do consulting on electric vehicles. So uh, because they, they were just looking for people that had experience with them. So started right. doing, I did a few consulting gigs for some of the major automakers. And I was like, hey, you know, I could, you know, I might be able to make some money doing this. And uh, uh, things progressed and I got more and more interested in electric vehicles. And I said, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to figure out how to make a career out of this. So I started writing regularly. And then I got to the point where I said, you know, I, I, this is what I want to do. So I, I sold my restaurant after 29 years owner and I went full time into EVs. And I was like, I still don't even know what I'm going to do yet. Am I going to be a writer? Am I going to do consulting? At the time, I had some infrastructure companies that I did some consulting for, and I started doing uh, chargers reviews. I had chargers that I was like, oh, let me, and I know they're EVSA. We can get into why I call them chargers, <laughs> even though they're not technically chargers. But um, I started doing some reviews, and they seemed to be really popular. People were like, that's great. Like, nobody out there is telling us which ones are good and bad. So I started doing that regularly, and that kind of developed into my niche where um, I report on all things EV, but my, the thing that I really is 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 close to my heart is explaining charging equipment and how to charge your EV to, to people. So there's a million people out there doing reviews on EVs, and I still do reviews on, on electric vehicles and so forth, but my, what I really focused in on was reviewing charging equipment. So I started this YouTube channel called State of Charge. And that's primarily what I do. Now I do range tests and I do a, a DC fast charging analysis and all that. That all works well. But what I really do is charge, charge, charging equipment reviews. And I think it's been very helpful to people new to the business, new to EVs, where they're like, okay, I got this great EV now. What, what charger do I get? I don't know what's a good charger versus a bad charger. And hopefully I'm helping them figure that out. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. And it's uh, funny you mentioned the Mini Cooper or the electric Mini Cooper, because I believe it was around that time. And I don't know if this was offered on the East Coast as well, but BMW also played around with a electric BMW 1 Series. And that I know they were doing kind of test drives and I think very limited leases in the Bay Area. I happened to be down visiting when they were doing just randomly like a test drive event of them. Uh, right off one of the piers. And I drove that thing. It one looked cooler than the base uh, one series because it had this bulge in the front because it looked like what would normally be like a turbocharger or something was there because of the batteries. And I drove it and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I, I know of Tesla, but these OEMs got it figured out. This is going to, they're just going to build these. I'm going to buy one yeah. of these because this thing is so much fun to drive. Uh, great power. And maybe a few months after that, it was just like, it never happened. And I have yet to ever see a electric one series uh, again. And it was phenomenal. It was such a fun car. I think the range may have only been like 150 miles or something, but at the time I thought it was the greatest thing. And shortly after that, never saw it again. I know the electric mini program continued a little bit after that, but uh, I don't know if you ever got a chance to drive one of those or see those. So, um, yeah, long story now. Um, <laughs> it actually did materialize. It was called the BMW Active E, and it was a retrofitted yeah. one series. And the yeah, bulge yeah. on the hood was exactly what you said, because the battery block, they had to put batteries all over. It wasn't just one battery pack because they were retrofitting right. a car. There were batteries in the transmission tunnel, and there was a big battery block under the front hood. So it's called the BMW Active E, and it was offered in a certain number of areas, Northern California and Southern California, and then in the same area that the Mini E was available here on the East Coast. So that was BMW's second generation of prototype electric vehicle. It was That's never right. designed to be bought. So what happened was everyone that was in the Mini E program got first dibs on an Activate if they wanted to lease one. Interesting. And, and then they, they, they but they made more Activates. They made 1,100 of them. 
So they had extra. So they did offer it as a lease. You could have leased one if you would have followed up with your dealership and asked them questions about it. So they put 1,100 of them out there. I had one. I drove up for two and a half years. I drove mine about 75,000 miles. Um, wow. And uh, I was the first person to get it. Now, BMW, because at that time, I'd become very well-known with the Mini E for doing all these news articles and everything. Other people in the Mini E program, I was probably the highest profile person because I had done a lot of news reporting. And BMW used to take me around to these events so I could talk about electric mobility as a customer, not as a BMW representative. So they asked me, they said, we want you to be the very first handover of the active E and the CEO of BMW is going to hand you the keys. We're going to do a big handover ceremony at BMW headquarters. News is going to be there and all this stuff. So I said, sure, I'll, you'll drive your mini E in, you'll park it, you'll give us the keys, then we'll give you the keys to the active E, you'll make a speech and you'll drive away, which is what we did. So the interesting thing about that is, so I leased the BMW Active E that was in January of 2012, January, 2012. So that was the first electric BMW offered to the public ever. You know, they had made experimental BMWs before. Now the Mini Cooper was a Mini, it's not a BMW. So Tom Malogany is the very first person in BMW history to lease or purchase an all-electric BMW. And that'll never change. And and they actually had a little section in the BMW Museum over in Munich on this with (laughs) pictures of me getting the keys of it and everything. So uh, it's interesting that you brought up that car because there's a piece of history that I'm involved with with that car. And that's I'm the first customer to ever get an all-electric BMW. So between the two, I mean... At the, I mean, technically at that time, Mini was owned by BMW already, right? Still are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, between the two, which one did you like more? It's hard to say because they both had different characters. The Mini yeah. E was a very rudimentary, it was like a home-built car. You know, BMW <laughs> right, right. put it together really quickly with all third-party components. It wasn't BMW's tech. You know, they they had basically AC Propulsion, which was a yeah. company out in California. They had the powertrain and all this stuff. So they it was a Frankenstein car, we used to call it, because it was cobbled together with all these parts. But it was just a blast to drive, and it was my first EV. So it'll always hold a, right. a, a place in my heart. Now, the Active E was much more polished. It had a thermal management system that Mini E had no thermal management. So in the summer, the batteries would get really hot. In the winter, they'd get really cold. The Mini, the Active E had a, a liquid thermal management system. It had, uh, uh, you know, a, a much nicer, more plush interior, a softer ride, a quieter cabin. It kind of looked really cool, as you mentioned, you know, right. a, a one series, you know. So I, I'm not going to pit one against the other. They both, <laughs> my, you know, I, I hold them both close to my heart because they're my first two electric vehicles. That were never available for sale. They were they were de- they were designed only to be prototypes, but I love them both in their own unique way. If you made me, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably take the Mini over it because it wow. was my first electric car, gotcha. and it was just such a blast to drive. The Mini E was was faster than the Active E. Oh, really? Okay, interesting. Yeah. I, I think uh, that is probably where I originally came across some of your writings and stuff was some of the reporting you did on the mini E, but I, I guess I either didn't realize or had forgotten that yeah. you also had an active E. Yeah. And um, I had a blog about that too. The active E blog spot, I think was, um, active E got a, and I forget the name, but active E mobility dot blog spot gotcha. was my, was my <laughs> blog on that. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess segueing a little bit to what you're covering now more, um, I, I think let's let's talk about state of charge. And you've actually had some really interesting uh, products to kind of review and cover the past few months, ranging from the new Tesla charger that you seem to be pretty impressed with, or at least last mm-hmm. I'd heard, um, to even uh, I, I think it's also been really interesting to see some of the charging discrepancies you've had with cars. Uh, and the one that kind of comes to mind was like the Lyric between what Kyle experienced, what you got, uh, what you experienced, and kind of figuring out some of the issues with that. Um, but let's kind of kick it off with just the, the state of level two charging in general, um, what you've been seeing and maybe some of, uh, for anyone listening, any tips and kind of recommendations for anyone out in the market right now? Yeah. So, you know, the one thing is that all level two charging equipment isn't created equal. 
and and you know you know very high level advice would be please don't go to Amazon and just search EV charger and then click lowest to highest price <laughs> because you will get garbage and a lot of people do that for Amazon and I know why they do that because we're so conditioned let's say you're going to buy you know uh, you know a, a tape measure you know yeah. like like you might search lowest to highest because you're like look I'm going to anyway in 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 a year so why should i buy the 40 dollars tape measure when there's one for 9.99 and that's not a bad idea but when you're buying charging equipment uh it's a different animal here and there's a lot of very low quality cheap equipment mostly getting dumped in from asia that just it's garbage and it's not going to last and at, you know if you're lucky it'll just break you know, it won't cause a problem where melting the pins on your car and you need a new charge inlet installed for $1,500 or, or fire in your house. So, Which you know, I think those two reasons alone are enough, but I, I don't, I mean, but people don't totally realize get it that, when they're Chase, new, they don't problem. realize it, especially they, like, they don't realize it. Yeah. I'm sorry to talk over you. That's no. the biggest issue. People, they just don't, you know, they don't realize that, that, that there are serious safety issues with with charging it's perfectly safe if you do it correctly but exactly. if you vary from doing things properly you know there's a lot of power being fed to your car it's not like a lamp or a, you yeah. know ceiling fan you know pulling you know half a kilowatt you know th there's a lot of power that goes through these things and that's that's when you have problems i think that's um spot on and i i think one thing to add to that um and you know this is like even though we've both been kind of following in, a, in this industry for like close i mean you've probably been now longer than that but like pretty much about a decade um it's this is still kind of the early days uh i one of the things i've been working on lately is actually converting our we have a night we have our daily driver is a tesla model y long-range ev um, but we also have a 1987 Land Rover Defender 90 that we're working on converting to electric. It's got a 3.9 liter V8. It's an awesome vehicle. Uh, we live in central Oregon, so there's mountains and everything. It's great for hikes and so on. But it is wild to me. Uh, this is not as true with charging because you do have some of the kind of the U.S. electrical code and standards. But with actual EV conversions, I went to a course just for fun this past year down Phoenix. It was a great course. And we're actually going to have uh, one of the, a couple of the people from that speak later in a month or so, but it's still the wild west. There's like no specifics as where a lot of these uh, retrofits or like how exactly the wiring has to be done. Um, and I think you add that to what you're talking about with a lot of these kind of lower quality chargers being put on the market. And you kind of do have like the perfect storm of these probably not well documented, not, I mean, not everything for sure is going to be UL listed, but all these things just kind of get on the market. Uh, electricians, uh, good or bad, maybe this is the first one they install. So there's like so many different variables and points of where this can go wrong, that the more you can do to save, uh, you're essentially spending a little bit more, more, uh, more money to save yourself a lot of money down the road and uh headache really to make and, sure you have a safety exactly when when do you usually charge your car uh abc i'm i'm always I always be well, charging but well, i i know well, what you mean at night overnight generally. yeah overnight okay yeah. when's the last time that you want to have some kind of problem when you're sleeping so it's For like sure. you know you're you're up you know in your bedroom sleeping and down in your garage you have this device that's pulling you know 48 amps you know, the, the 11 kilowatts of power, the rest of your house is only consuming three or four kilowatts of power at the time, just to yeah. power your refrigerator and some things, you know, the, so you, your EV is pulling three times the power, three to four times the power of the rest of your house. And, you know, you, you've got shady equipment, you know, without, you know, or had somebody install it that didn't understand that they had to torque all the connections to a specific torque rating that's listed in the owner's manual. So they just grabbed their wrench and went, eh, okay, that's exactly. good. The next, eh, that's good. You know, and, and it, no, it's not good because those connections are going to get up to 150, 160 degrees while the car's charging. And then if you live in a cold weather area like Oregon, after the car's done charging, they're going to drop down to maybe 20 or 30 degrees. Then you're going to plug it in and you're going to go up to 140 degrees. That, that enormous power variation causes the screws to actually back out. 
And yeah. now you get arcing and it's, it's, you have to have a qualified person work on this. And it's one of the reasons why I partnered with this, this outfit called Cumera. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they specialize in EV charging in, uh, installations and all their installers, you know, not to give them a plug, but th that's the reason is they're trained on EV charging installations and equipment, and they know to follow all best practices for EV charging. And yeah, I'm not saying use Qmerit, just use somebody who understands right. EV charging equipment and that they're, they're not just going to go, eh, it's tight enough, which you get, you know, even licensed electricians do that. I, you know, before I have an electrician install my charging equipment, I'd ask him, do you do this frequently? You know, do you use a torque wrench when you tighten the connections? I'd ping them on that. And then here's another one. You're not going to use aluminum wire, right? Because right. aluminum wire is cheaper, but aluminum wire is not, none of the charging equipment suppliers certify a, a, a aluminum wire to be used on their product. So you got to pull copper because it, it expands and contracts too much aluminum wire. It's funny you should say, I'm, I'm like, is that, I almost would have sworn because it stood out to me, but I'm probably wrong that the Tesla charger you, is said you could use aluminum wire, but I'm no. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically okay. says in the owner's manual, yeah. do not use. I, I did it. Needless to say, yeah. I did it. Yeah. But I, no, I no, no, wanted, no, no, for no. some reason I was like, remember like when I read it, it stood out, but I, uh, I must be thinking of something else, but yeah, um, no, it says copper only. Which makes sense. I'm I'm totally with you. Um, uh, but I think real one final thing to cover on that. Do you still have the uh, 1450 uh, plug that you were showing me before the uh, before we start recording yeah. here? I think that's also a great example. And I guess for anyone listening, uh, Tom, did you want to give a little <laughs> overview so, and all? So I have I have a bunch of these actually. Do you see this is a NEMA 1450 outlet? And as you can see, it's not in great shape. This one here is made by Leviton and you can buy it for about 10 bucks. Now there's other NEMA 14 to 50 outlets that look exactly the same as this. That costs a hundred dollars. One for instance is made by a brand called Hubble. And uh, so how come you've got these two outlets that look identical for the most part, the Hubble's thicker, um, uh, but the front of it would look the same and it, it's supposed to be able to work just as fine. Um, why is one cost 10 bucks and the other one costs a hundred dollars? There's gotta be a difference there, right? Or is Hubble just a greedy company that's trying to, uh, you know, get more money out of you. And, and the, the, it's the former, not the latter. Um, the, there's some very low quality outlets out there. And it's one of the reasons why I, I just recommend everybody hardwire their charging equipment, but I understand some people prefer buying a plug-in unit, but if you do buy a high quality industrial grade outlet. Now, Leviton advertises this as industrial grade anybody can say it's industrial grade so that's a problem because don't yeah, you can't just, just read the for anyone listening there he just put up a 1450 outlet that now has a hole burnt through it that you could probably put a ping pong ball through yeah, um yeah. it's <laughs> very concerning <laughs> yeah uh needless <laughs> to say but that uh is 100 percent spot i i, I think yeah, uh, you bring up a great point there, Tom. It's like usually when people ask me, I, I realize it's usually more money, but if they can do it, just go for the EF. I always call them charges too, but yes, technically the EVSE. Yeah. Um, but I get it. Sometimes situation dictates that you just have a fourteen fifty in your garage. Great, yeah. replace it. Don't use replace the it. it yeah, it costs less to hardwire a, a, a charger because then you don't have the hundred dollar right. expense of the of the outlet, you know. And right. um, I, I, it's just a better, it's a safer installation. And the and so when people basically say, well, why does this happen with the cheap ones? Th these are certified for use, and the but the problem is they're not up for the duty cycle of electric vehicle charging. Right. These will work just fine if you plug something into it every couple of weeks and you use that device, whatever it is for an hour, but with EV charging, you're pulling the maximum current that this is rated to, to, to power sometimes for six, seven, eight hours, continuously three, four, five times a week. So it just cannot sustain that. I'm telling if you buy a Leviton outlet like this, a 1450, <laughs> it's going to melt. It's just a matter of when it, and it depends on how, um, how much you use it, how many hours continuously, how much power you're pulling through it. If you're pulling the maximum 40 amps through one of these and you have a big a battery with a big EV and you drive a lot, that guy's going to melt within the first year. And uh, I have dozens and dozens of my followers that have sent me pictures. Some almost burned down their house over it. It's just not worth it.
buy good quality equipment. Yeah, and I, I think uh, just one final thing to say on just to think about is like, as you said, uh, you're doing your charging at night, you're drawing way more power from the EV. And for any naysayers that are listening, this is totally safe. It just has to be done right. This, mm-hmm. There's a reason that house fires have started from all sorts of things in the past, whether it be dryer lint to uh, uh, other sorts of shorts. You just have to make sure it's done right. And once it's done right, it's a, it's a pretty much do, set it and forget it. But um, another way to look at it is essentially at night, you're running two to three commercial welders while your car is charging. I mean, it's a lot of power. Yeah. So All you night. Wanna, uh, yeah, exactly. For an extended period. And I think that really is the big thing um, as opposed to other intermittent things that a lot of yes. these 240s are designed for. Because the um, power now, is from the heat generated. Exactly. And the longer you run it, the hotter it gets. If you just run for a short period, let it cool down, plug it in again you're not going to generate that heat. But the problem is the four, five, six, seven hours of continuous load, that thing just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and the connections can't handle it. And now that we've scared everyone listening, what uh, what are some of the chargers that you right now are kind of most impressed with and really, uh, or the EVSEs that you've really found uh, to be the most durable and just kind of best uh, case for a lot of people who are in the market looking for one? Yeah. So, you know, there's so many, and I I always tell people there's really no one size fits all. Uh, You you need to, um, there's some questions that need to be answered for me to tell you what the best charger is. And actually I have a website that I didn't even mention it to you, Chase, a new website that I'm just launching. It's called evchargingstations.com. And on that I'm building, it's not available yet. And I haven't really talked about this website because it's not ready to show everybody. But um, I'm building a tool on that that um, it's going to ask you 10 questions. And based on that, I'm going to give you my top three recommendations on chargers that, to buy. So because um, cool. so many people send me emails saying, Tom, I just bought uh, a BMW i5, i4 and uh, I live in this area and this. Please tell me what charger to buy. And I can't respond to the emails because I get overwhelmed with them. Sometimes I get 20, 30 emails every day from, yeah, from actually, followers gonna... asking me. I'm going to, that's a good layup for uh, another uh, plug for you. No pun intended about the batteries included podcast. I've been listening to with you, Cal Connor and uh, Martin along Dominic with and Martin. Yeah, there you go. Um, great thing for anyone listening to this. You really should listen to that. I I've really enjoyed it. Um, all of them are very entertaining and great on kind of EV news, but this is the exact thing I remember hearing in one of the last episodes, you were talking about how you're getting so many emails about this and I can, uh, understand I've been <laughs> to schedule this call, but they're, they're nothing against that. I, it's, it's going to be busier than board. So I think and that's, people that's think I'm avoiding them exactly, you know, exactly. because I don't respond, but it's not issue. it. I just, I get it. I just get so many emails that I can't right. keep up with it. And I feel bad because I always used to respond to people that reached out to me. I feel like if people took the time to ask me a question, I should honor them with a response, but I can't anymore. So I'm like, how do I deal with this? How do I help people. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to make this tool and I'm just going to direct people to the charger recommendation tool. And uh, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. But you asked me, I haven't answered the question yet about what, (laughs) which chargers. So some of my top chargers today, the the new Tesla universal wall connector, um, which is so cool. And I'll show you really quick. And and the cool thing about this was Tesla only sent it to me. I am the only person that Tesla sent this to, which was an honor. So it's regular Tesla connector, the NAX connector, but it also charges CCS uh, or not CCS J1772 equipped vehicles. You press a little button here and a J1772 adapter attaches to the top of the Tesla adapter. And now it's tethered. You can't get it off. So you can't steal it, but this new universal charger can charge any EV sold in North America, which is really good. So that's one of my top recommendations. I also recommend the Emporia charger, which is a really good charger. The Grizzle E, which is a low cost, 40 amp, very robust charger. Um, Even the charge point home flex behind me here is a very good unit. It's pricey, but it's a very good unit. Those are some of my top recommendations. But again, I need to know, have a lot of questions. Are you going to mount it outside? Do you live in a cold weather area? Do you live in a really hot weather area? Uh, How many amps do you have available in your house? You know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of questions. There's no one size fits all. And, and I think that also speaks really well to your channel and some of the stuff you do. Cause I, I was like, okay, he's doing EV charger reviews. I guess that makes sense. There's a need for that. How do you really charge an EV? And then you're plunging in water. You're doing all these things. I'm like, 
Okay, no, that that totally makes sense and is definitely legit. Yeah. That like these are the things that these are exposed to, and need to be designed for. So um, yeah, I I understand why you're getting so many emails about it. I'm I'm gr uh, glad you're making this website for people to go to, and yeah. for anyone that uh, has questions, I highly recommend it. Uh, one thing before we change topics, I am really curious on how you've been liking the Ford uh, home charging uh, V2G V2L uh charger how how that's been going because i'm i've watched a couple of the episodes about the insulation and i wouldn't say issues but just difficulties with setting up a system like that so I, i'm just curious if they're for one your overview thoughts on the process and then two uh mm -hmm. if you've been using a lot how what you think of it okay so yeah what what you're talking about is i have the ford charge station pro which is an 80 amp char level right. two charger but this is a bi-directional charger it can accept power as well as deliver to the vehicle and then if you if you have your Ford Lightning and you buy and you have this charger and then you buy what they call the home integration kit, then you can actually use your truck to power your house, which I have. I had it installed. I have a very comprehensive video on the installation and how it works with the different power flow and everything. Um, so the one thing that I can say is, you know, has it been seamless? No, there's been issues. Um, but I expected that. Uh, because this is the first generation. This is the first sure. time your EV could charge your power your house. So I knew going into this, and I was one of the first people to get this and have it installed. I knew there was going to be issues. I feel bad for some of the retail customers that did it thinking like, yeah, this was just going to rock. Well, and right I, I think this one. goes back exactly and, to exactly to what I was saying. Like this, like talking mm -hmm. about Wild West, the whole mm -hmm. V2G, that whole space is still... Yeah. I think and it's going to be for a while early days. It's yeah. going to be rocky for yeah. a while for, for all the, the products out there. And um, so, yeah, I had some issues with it, but uh, I've, I've gotten it to work. I had some, something needed to be repaired, got fixed, um, but it works. You know, when I plug my truck in, if I have a power outage, it's powering that uh, I can deliver about 10 kilowatts, nine, 9.6 kilowatts to the house. And uh, it works, you know, it's just, um, there's some glitches still, there's still some software glitches, but uh, pretty much every time I needed to use it, it worked. That's great. But yeah. I have had to fix it. It had a problem. So Yeah. And then, I mean, once again, I think it's a really cool technology and there's definitely some use cases for it, but mm -hmm. it's not a plug and play solution. And that's not, not yet. essentially Ford's problem either. Uh, I, I just don't think a lot of people realize the complexity of doing a system like that. Essentially, the way, and you can probably even do a better job of scrambling this than I can, but because of how the uh, most home outlets or home panels are designed for flow of energy, unless you already have like a solar uh, system set up, there's a lot of things that kind of have to go in to make sure that the panels used to getting energy back, back through it in that direction. Um, but I, I think it is a technology long-term that has a lot of really cool uses. Yeah. Um, it, 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 there's, there's a, some hurdles, but I mean, in theory, the way Ford has it set up, you know, it, 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 it's, it circumvents any issue like that, what you brought up, because you do a little sub panel and that's the panel that has all the circuits on that you're going to power and it works fine. It's just, there's still the biggest problem right now, in my opinion, is still the software needs to get ironed out, which I totally expect it to happen. There's still okay. some software glitches, but the hardware is all works. The, the transfer switch, you get isolated from the grid, boom, you know, in, in a minute or so, the truck's power in the house. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's gen one, it's the first yeah. one of these things out there. Um, I'm surprised it's worked as well as it has to be honest with you. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm not trying to shoot it down by any means. Um, cause I know you already, and I, I'm just speaking from my personal experience. My house was built in the seventies and it, um, is only a hundred amp panel. So mm. I would have to have a few other things done to it to really, uh, get it to yeah, that point. Service I, I, upgrade. Exactly. And I, I just, I guess that's what I'm talking to is a lot of people don't fully appreciate and understand that and how calm that is. Um, but I'm going to do that anyway, when I probably put solar in our house, it's just one of those things that just to be aware of, it's not an impossibility, but it's not, yeah. um, unless you have a newer home, it's probably not going to be as straightforward as no. it could be. No, it's going to be expensive too. Yeah. You know, it's going to yeah. be very expensive. So, and, and the, what makes it even harder to say you should do it was, the lightning, for instance, that you need to be able to power the system also has pro power on board, which can deliver the same 9.6 kilowatts. It's just, you have to run a whole bunch of extension cords right, from the right, truck right. to power your stuff. And then you can't power things like your lights because they're all hardwired through your house. 
you know, but you could run your refrigerator and things that are important from the truck. So you already have the power. So you say, well, I can kind of get through a power outage doing it this way, set up some portal, right. For, for free, or I could spend $12,000 and have this system and worry about the software working, you know? So exactly. It's, 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 it's a tough financial decision at this point. Yeah. Um, I think all this stuff we've talked about has been great, but it is also been in the level in the realm of level two charging. It has all been about usually people who own their own home or have a rental where it's kind of easy access. Um, I I'd love to kind of hear a little more about your thoughts on where you see the future of level two and even level one charging for maybe, uh, people who are in kind of multifamily homes or even, any uh i've seen some out there but I, i'd be curious to see your thoughts on like ones just for like street parking solutions like that um if there are any you've seen or what you think maybe some of the solutions for that space might be sure well i was in amsterdam recently and uh it's just the cool thing was they had the whole they were all over the place they had like parking meters they had electric yeah. car chargers all over the place and uh in in in, in a lot of places in europe they have that we don't really have a lot of street charging here in the u.s there were I know there were a few small pilot programs years ago, I remember, but we really don't have that yet. We need it uh, here for sure, especially in the cities. Um, But, you know, we also need um, charger ready legislation. Uh, And with that is, you know, for like it, it mandates that new construction be built um, with the added capacity in the electrical panels and the conduit installed to char- to install electric vehicle charging equipment when needed. Um, they don't mandate that you put the chargers in immediately because some of the buildings are going to say, look, nobody lives here. Nobody has an electric car. They're going to, you know, in the coming right. years. So having the infrastructure in place so that when you need to hang a, a charger, it's just hang it on the wall, pull the cable, energize it, and there you go. You have your charger. Some of the biggest problems we have, let's say, in some of the cities, like I live near New York City, is the buildings are so old, it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to trench, to bring new cable to the building, to do service upgrades on the building, to do the interconnection. So at least if we start doing all new construction, manned, and even single-family homes, should it should be mandated that there's a 50 amp circuit, you know, dead end into the garage inside a pan, inside a, a junction box closed off. You don't have to make them install the charging equipment, but at least have a circuit with it ready to go. So somebody buys the house, they have an electric car. Okay, good. You just need to hang the charger, connect the wires. You're good to go. Um, so that I think that's the direction we need to start going in. We need to have more charger ready legislation. Now, way back in I think 2014. I testified in New York City um, in front of the Housing and Transportation Board to to because Mayor Bloomberg at the time wanted to have a charger-ready legislation, and, and we got it passed. So New York City, for instance, already has charger-ready legislation in place, but we need to have it in uh, all the cities. Everywhere should have charger-ready legislation. New parking lots and new uh, multifamily buildings that are installed should have the conduit installed and the added capacity waiting in the electrical panel so they don't have to do service upgrades and retrench and everything when the time comes that half the building is occupied by people with evs and they want to charge their cars at home and yeah and i i think that's pretty spot on i i've actually uh just through my previous exposure kind of working commercial solar uh it's a similar thing where like it's very it's not would it be adding a cost yes but the cost is so insignificant to help make the house uh solar and ev ready that it also adds just a huge in my opinion selling or even renting opportunity for whoever down the road that all then they have to do is kind of do some wiring and it it sounds simple and it really is but if you have to do it retroactively it increases the cost and does uh it removes that simplification pretty quickly so um, it's exponential you you know what it what it costs it to doesn't like, seem like it is, but it definitely yeah, is. It's incredibly, mo- it's much more expensive, but right. you still have builders pushing back on these regulations because to them, you know, even let's say they built a building that cost, you know, $400,000 to build. They don't even, they don't want to spend the extra $2,000. Uh, honestly, on, I don't on, think on, it's that much, you know, especially yeah. if you're doing like a large development. It's like, 
in my experience, yeah. like closer to 150. It's like pretty. Well, I mean, let's say you're trenching. Scale. Let's say you're trenching to well, a parking fair. area, you know, and you got to okay, put in fair. conduit under the ground. But while you're there doing all this site work, yeah. it's not that expensive. When you have to saw cut the pavement, dig it up, right, right. Put the, put, my God, it costs so much more. So, yeah. But we should have this. It should. We we should have more charger ready legislation. All new construction should be mandated to have the 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 infrastructure ready to go when the people want to add charging equipment. Yeah, and I, I think um, one of the things I'm a big proponent of, and obviously kind of is unsaid with your show, is how important level two charging is. Where as much as I love DC fast charging and watching you and Kyle Connor and some of these other people do the. DC fast charging and all these tests and stuff at the end of the day, there's so like, once you kind of know the system and you know where you, it, what it reminds me of is kind of um, what was the big thing in aviation, at least before COVID was instead of, it was kind of the hub and spoke model instead of like going, flying from LA to Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to a small airport, you would fly from Santa Barbara or I guess not Santa Barbara in this case, but the idea is you'd fly directly instead of having to go through this other infrastructure. And I think that's totally true with level two. It's like, once you know where you're going has level two charging, or you make sure that it's at least even level one charging where you're going, like so many of the trips I take now, I don't ever have to even use a supercharger, um, which unto itself is a luxury to have the access to the supercharger as I'm constantly reminded by some of my friends and others, but it, it requires a little more planning, but it saves a lot of money. It makes the trip so much easier. And not that supercharging by any means is, uh, stressful or tough. It's just like you get there and you never even have to think about dealing with it. And I, I think um, while there's a lot, and I, I think it goes exactly to the, the legislation part of this, so much of the money and focus goes to like the sexiness, if you will, of DC fast charging or how necessary that is. And it obviously does have a large part to play, but I think it highlights not enough people making this legislation are exposed to let alone driving evs and that's where the importance of like level two charging or just trying to make it that more common and easier for people will uh inherently minimize dc the need uh, not only just the need for dc fast charging but like how many people will be using one at a time obviously there will be like holidays and certain things like that but if you can proactively make it easier for people to use level two charging they skip it um completely and i think a lot of people coming from the gasoline world and combustion engine world don't fully appreciate kind of how magical that is. Everyone kind of thinks about like, oh, how expensive DC fast chargers are or how much it costs to charge or how long it takes. Whereas like, I rarely have to do that anymore. And I'll go a few, a couple hundred miles at least yeah. um, from different parts of the state or to other states and never even have to use a fast charger. And that might be a little bit, that's maybe, I guess, me ranting a little bit more of a pro EV driver move, but it's something that I think needs to be more of the conversation. Um, well, we do need all levels of charging. Yeah, for you sure, know, for sure. Know, you know, and, and there's use cases for, for all of them. And yes, we need to level two uh, charging to proliferate and be everywhere, like hotels, for instance. Every single hotel should have a bank of level two chargers, let's face it. You know, level one charging even works. Long-term parking places, long-term sure. parking lots, airports. Airports should have rows and rows of inexpensive level one charging uh, and just equipment, to clarify, or at least outlets. Listening, that's just, yeah, yeah, that's just a regular wall outlet. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're parked there for days, like you're on a trip at an airport, why not be trickle matter. charging on 120 exactly. volts, right? It's so much less expensive to install. So, um, yeah, shopping centers, shopping malls, level two charging is great for that. You know, uh, so the, the coffee shops, you know, I mean, uh, there's there, 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 we need all levels and all speeds Fair. of charging True. really. And, and, and you're right that will, if, if level, if there was more level two charging, that would take some of the stress off the need to have so many uh, DC fast chargers, but we still need a lot of DC fast chargers to enable I, long distance it. traveling. Yeah. And also for people that can't charge at home. For if sure. they live in an area that they don't sure. have that ability to charge overnight, they need access to fast uh, level uh, DC fast charging. So they, in a pinch, they could just add 30, 40% of their battery to get them through the next couple of days. For sure. And I, I, I think that uh, does just kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier, though, to reiterate, like on-street parking charging needs to be figured out. Like mm -hmm. uh, just the more you can minimize going people, the DC fast charger for a lot of reasons. Um, but 
I, as someone who, I mean, I guess I, I, I can kind of gloat, but compared to you, I'm sure it's nothing. I mean, I put on 34,000 miles doing road trips on my car last year and yeah, a good portion of that would have not been possible without DC fast charging. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there were plenty of times I was like, you know, I'm fast charging, but I've had there, had there been a level two along the way where we got lunch or where we're going to, I wouldn't have had to charge at all, but, um, more charging is better than what we're at right now. So I'm, I'm for all types of charging. I think, I think you put it very eloquently and pretty accurately that we need everything. And we'll um, get it. It's coming for sure. For sure. Uh, with that, I know, uh, your focus kind of has been more around, uh, level two chargers, but with some of the EVs you've been driving and I, I guess uh, refresh my memory, you had a Rivian, but right now, what, what are the EVs that you have personally? You got the F-150 Lightning. I have, uh, I currently own an F-150 Lightning, a Rivian R1S. I oh, had a gotcha. Rivian it's R1T. The SUV. Gotcha. I had the R1T and I sold it when my Rivian R1S came in and bought the R1S. So I have a Lightning, a Rivian R1S and a Chevy Bolt EV. Gotcha. And of those three, what would you say is your favorite daily and it kind of makes charging the easiest since they are all CCS? Yeah, you know, probably the Lightning is my favorite yeah. daily driver. Yeah, I, I love how it drives. And uh, that's what I hop in when the, all three vehicles are parked in the, the driveway. If Meredith, my wife's name is Meredith, if she hasn't taken one of them, um, my first vehicle to jump in is always a Lightning. And uh, just out of The other vehicles are great vehicles. I yeah, just yeah, yeah. like how the Lightning drives. Yeah. Um, and I, I know you've tested like the Lyric and a couple other cars recently. What... Um, having such a wide exposure to auto OEMs and how they're approaching level two and DC faster. Like what has been your takeaway of where these auto OEMs uh, I, I know you'd shared on some of the GM products. It, I forget. What is it? They don't have, it doesn't show the uh, kilowatt. Uh, no, well, I, I hate the fact that all the GM cars don't show the state of charge. Once you get under like, like that's, 8% state of charge at the very right. end, that's when right. you need it the most, when yeah. you're going to be white knuckled and worried about running away the whole time, it shows you the state of charge and then, and how many remaining miles you have. And then you get down to the end and it just says low, yeah. like it gives you nothing. Now you can get that information in your app and, and it, on the newer GM vehicles, if you are using the uh, integrated navigation system, you can see like your remaining state of charge, but like, so the vehicle knows it, knows what the state, they selectively choose to make it go away from the driver's display. I don't want, I'm driving. I don't want to pull up my phone and check my app or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's a puzzling decision that they do. And um, I don't understand it. It's bizarre. They're the only company that does this, that just doesn't like once the vehicle gets low, they, they decide, Oh yeah, you don't need to know what your state of charge is anymore or how many remaining miles you have. We're just going to tell you it's low. Like what the hell? you already knew that, but we're just going <laughs> to yeah. remind you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, if you didn't have white knuckles before th- <laughs> that, th- th- it blinked to low, you're going to be like, Ugh! like, like, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you're going to make it to something. the charger. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's it puzzling. really doesn't give you confidence in the system. If you like, even the car, it seems like doesn't yeah. know what it's uh, at Yeah. Um, with those, with that white exposure and that experience, what uh, I guess, are there any cars that stand out to you right now? besides, as you said, the GM ones um, that are doing kind of a good job at like just making uh, the transition if it's your first EE, uh, first EV are doing a good job of that. And then second, any kind of feedback or thoughts you have for general automakers and their EV programs? Yeah, so, you know, I don't know if there's a specific vehicle that I would say this vehicle but what I will say is some manufacturers, the starters particular like Tesla and Rivian, I think do a good job at helping the customer understand EVs. Like Rivian, for instance, when you're DC fast charging, you know, it and uh and your and your uh 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 charge rate gets derated because the charging station isn't delivering the power it can because maybe it's overheating or the the truck's battery is too hot, so it's it's limiting the power. It gives you a little warning that says DC fast charging rate lowered you know, due to temperature. So I love that. And I love when they also display how many kilowatts the vehicle is taking at that time, uh, which is, I think it's very helpful. 
I love when some EVs give you battery temperature. The um, Rivian's just had a, or uh, are going to be having a big software update that that's going to be included in. Um, Porsche always did that. The Taycans always gave that's you true. battery temperature. Um, and that's useful information to EV owners. And I think some of the, the existing legacy brands, they don't understand that that's very important for people to, to view and they don't, they don't give it to you. So I think that's something that, that some of the manufacturers are doing well. My lightning, what I think is really good. What Ford does is they give you this regenerative braking coach and it tells you oh, the right, percentage. Right, right. Every time you take the car down to a stop, it tells you what's the percentage of stopping that was done with regen versus friction brakes. So it can coach you to help you maximize your range because every time you stop, you want that to say a hundred percent. That way you're, you're, you're reclaiming as much energy as you can. And I love it when the manufacturers do that. No, those Things are great like examples. That. Yeah. 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 Um, and the temperature one is an interesting one to mention. I think definitely for, I don't want, I guess maybe EV nerds or pro EV drivers, it matters a lot. Do you think that maybe the reason automakers are doing that is it might be concerning or kind of too much information to like someone who's coming from a combustion engine driver? They're like, okay, I got to worry about the temperature of my battery now. Well, there's always been temperature gauges on ice right. vehicles, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> Why remove it for the EV, you know? Yeah. But I understand oh, I, what I, you're saying. Yes, I yeah. think there are times. But you know what? If that's the case, don't put it front and center. Put it in the yeah. info to, in somewhere in the settings where people that really want it can pull it up the and they can activate it. Give us the for option. Because sure. the vehicle yeah. knows that information. Give us the option to access it if we want to. No, I, and I that I completely agree with for sure. Um, and then uh, I realize we're kind of coming up on the end of time here. With, uh, I, I guess I'd be curious to uh, hear a, a couple of things. And one is with the current state of DC fast charging, what are you kind of hoping to see or what do you think is the answer to kind of solve the current situation with um, what we're seeing with the public DC fast chargers kind of struggling and having issues with trying to get CCS vehicles to be a viable road tripping option. Yeah. Well, I mean, one way, in my opinion, to improve reliability is everybody wants part of this NEVI funding. Everyone wants subsidies, right? For DC fast charging equipment. And I'm not necessarily against giving subsidies because we need to get this out as quickly as possible. Right. But there has to be strong, you know, incentives baked into that, not incentives, it's strong, um, like punishment penalties, if the equipment doesn't operate properly, you know, and I, the, the way it's currently written, it really isn't like, you know, they talk about uptime, but there's different ways you can define uptime. Yeah. You know, if, 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 if the company just pings the station and the station says, Hey, I'm fine. That's considered being up. But then you go to plug in your EV and it, it doesn't work. Like it's not interfacing, it's not working, or right. it's delivering like 15 kilowatts and you're you're expecting 150 kilowatts. That's still uptime. And and we need to do a better job at making sure if companies take public funding for these this infrastructure, it has to work as advertised and it has sure. to have an extremely high uptime, you know, better than 95% uptime of, yeah. you know, otherwise. You know the company has to repay the 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 uh, the 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 fund the federal funds that they got or pay a big fine. You know it's um that's a big thing because there's too much equipment out there that has been hasn't been serviced properly, isn't working properly, and people rely on this. And and you know you buy this brand new EV, you're new to EVs, you've had gas cars your whole life, and now the first road trip you take it's a disaster. You can't charge because it's broken or for whatever reason they're offline. You're, you're going to want to give the car back and say, the hell with these EVs. I, I, you know, they're not ready yet, you know, and right. um, it's unfortunate. And and that's the case we have in the, for the most part, outside of the Tesla supercharger network, it's very spotty at best on, on reliability. And uh, it's a big problem. We have to do better. For sure. And I, I think everything you said is pretty spot on. It's one of the interesting uh, takeaways I had with the recent, speaking of the NEVI funding, uh, recent conversations we had with Lauren McDonald of EV Adoption, 
Um, he was talking about how like NEVI funding long-term will be a benefit, but it's having a pretty strong short-term negative impact because of how slow the funds are being rolled out. In his opinion, it's also slowing down any of non-Tesla chargers from actually putting more chargers into the ground because they're waiting on the money. They're waiting on these things because of the Delta in cost. And it's yep. only kind of giving Tesla more of an advantage where they are making money. They can just keep rolling them out. And at, in the short term, at least, it's really not helping the situation with expanding uh, DC fast chargers. And that, I, that, I think, I'm sorry. No, go I was going to say that could, that could be true. You know, that could be the case. Um, but you know what? Tesla isn't uh, Tesla spending their own money for the most right. part. You know, they're, they're going to get a chunk of the NEVI funding too, but what they're spending now without that is their own money and right. nobody's stopping other companies from spending their own money. Uh, you know, it's, it's, they don't want to when, when you've got this, you know, giant pool of, of, uh, of public funds coming your way, you know, you, so, you know, I don't feel bad for the companies that are waiting and they feel like they're being left behind. Well, pour some of your own money into it and get this thing rolling. And then when the NEVI funding comes through, use that money also, you know? Yeah. I, I think it was really interesting just hearing from him because like, I didn't want to be a conspiracy theorist about it, but that kind of been my feeling of, and he'd even mentioned just in his conversations with these companies that they're like, they've kind of slowed down the rollout because now that there's an allotted amount of money and there's clear path to it, they're more focused on that than kind of, yeah. even maintaining, but especially adding new uh, stations, which I, I think, like I said, long-term, I think will be, a, it'll be more uh, DC faster. But in the interim, um, for non-Tesla drivers, it's kind of only making the Tesla supercharger network and that structure yeah. uh, more powerful. Um, Listen, in, in the first quarter of 2024, there's going to be right. adapters ready to uh, to access that for the for the manufacturers that have already agreed to uh, to to integrate the the um, Nax connector. So you know we're only a few months away from for sure me being able to roll up in my Lightning to a supercharger and use my adapter and charge away. So the other networks are gonna feel even more left behind once that happens. How soon are you gonna roll up to the supercharger in your Bolt? Oh, as soon as soon as well, get, get the max as soon 60 as, kilowatts. And, as, as soon as I get not yeah. even, it barely pulls yeah. that much. Yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll probably pull in one day at like zero and charge <laughs> to 100% just to record Tesla owners like being oh angry at me. Like, like, yeah, you've yeah. been here two hours. What the hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, I won't do that. I, I, I would, I know, I know. I'm just if somebody needed you. to. Um, okay. Final question. This is kind of something we ask all of our guests. Uh, in your opinion, with your exposure, what are some of the innovative ways that industry or government or both can help accelerate the rollout of EVs and battery technology, in your opinion? You know, the battery technology is an interesting thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think we need in to incentivize mo more like homegrown battery development here in this country. We really do. It's going to be an enormous um factor over the next few decades uh, with regards to uh, controlling the industry. We can't rely on foreign countries to provide us with our battery tech. So I would, I would be all in for the government and, you know, uh, giving away our money again here. Um, if they were to have some kind of big pro program, like a, to, to subsidize the development of new factories in this country, developing new uh, battery tech here. Uh, it's going to be the wave of the future. Batteries are going to be powering our vehicles for a long time. Uh, I'm not going to say grid, it's the last technology and the yeah. grid. So, you know, we, we, right now, most of our batteries come from China and, you know, uh, our, our relationship with China can be shaky at times. And if it turns, it takes a turn for the worse in the future and China decides, Hey, we're not going to give the U S batteries anymore. You know, you know, let's say we're at some point, even, even know, in just tariffs or any yes, sort of it, thing. It, yeah. it, yeah. Exactly. So I really think we need to invest heavily in this country in battery technology. And I would love to see the government have some sort of a, a new deal where they put a ton of money aside for companies to uh, um, invest in battery development and, and manufacturing plants here domestically. I think that would be the right thing to do. 
I couldn't agree more. And I think on that note, that's a great place to end this. I just want to say thanks again, Tom. It's great to have you on. Uh, any people listening, if you're not already following uh, State of Charge or the Batteries Include podcast or the evchargingstations.com up and coming website, or you have que- uh, friends who have questions about uh, what charger they should be putting in, please reach out to Tom on one of those channels, if not even on uh, Twitter, or I guess now X, always a great source to connect with him. But Tom, thank you so much for being on. Um, Been really a pleasure and uh, great to finally speak with you. Thanks for having me, Chase.